Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual meetup on unlocking healthcare's digital front door with integrated virtual care. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today, and I'm excited to host this virtual meetup panel of experts to talk about really uh, such an uh, important topic for healthcare organizations. We're going through this massive sea change, and 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 you know everyone needs to understand this topic, and hopefully we can shed some light that will help people in their implementation of this new digital front door and integrating virtual care into their organization. Uh, interestingly enough, this is kind of a, a part two of the series. So if you missed part one, you can go check it out at healthcareittoday.com. We'll certainly put a link in the notes if you're watching the recorded version. In the first version, we had a a meetup where we talked about how do we pay for virtual care. Uh, Gail really got into the reimbursement side, so be sure to check that out. A lot of uh, perspectives on what devices could be used and, and some other things like that. So check out part one about virtual care, you know, how it's been adopted uh, and how we're going to pay for it. And in this one, we want to focus on a little different one. We're going to look at how to identify the right patients and how do we engage those patients and then how do we measure the results. So we're excited to have everyone here. If you are are watching live and you have questions, be sure to submit those in the uh, GoToWebinar question area and we'll be watching those and it will work our best to incorporate those into the conversation as well. So please uh, throw out any questions you have. All right, I think that's enough logistics. Oh, I forgot one more. If you are live tweeting, you can do it on uh, transform HIT hashtag. You'll see a lot of tweets from other people that are live tweeting as well on uh, transform HIT. And then you can also use the hashtag HITSM or the newly popular hashtag telemed now, which is a very fitting one. Jamie's a, a big part of that uh, community that's coming together. So if you do that, you'll see you'll be able to engage with a lot of great people. All right, now uh, enough of the logistics. Let's uh, go through intros. Uh, we'll have each of our panelists introduce themselves. So, Gail, do you want to start? Sure. Hi, Gail Zotz. I'm Vice President of Continuum of Care at Centers Healthcare. We're one of the largest post-acute health systems in the state of New York, and we're also in many states elsewhere. We have skilled nursing facilities, acute care, telemedicine, uh, the largest ambulance in New York State, and uh, I am working on what happens, exactly this, right? What happens with patients when they are not in a traditional facility? And this plays into the movement towards value and certainly virtual care, which is so salient today. So really excited, thanks. Awesome, and every time you talk to Gail, she has a new project. She's always pushing the envelope. So <laughs> great to have you here, Gail. <laughs> All right, Pete, you wanna go next? Sure. I thought it'd be a good uh, good idea for me to provide, it'll provide just a little background on my career. Um, I've had an over 20-year career, 30-year career now in technology and founded my own software company, uh, which was a network uh, and security event management solution that rolled up into IBM, where I had an 11-year career in their global security SWAT team. I'm also CSO at, uh, at eCare21. I'm the president and chief operating officer and chief security officer there. Um, and in 2018, I jumped at the opportunity to join this mission at eCare21 and left IBM to build a virtual care solution that now is transforming how healthcare and home care are delivered. 
Uh, and now we're in the midst of a public health emergency and vir virtual care is including telehealth and remote monitoring. It's now front and center and considered essential. And our growing relationship with Dell Technologies is really growing quickly and it's very special. Uh, so we're really glad to be able to help uh, customers engage with their patients more effectively, more efficiently, um, drive better outcomes, better quality, and drive costs down, um, and provide a patient-centered, proactive, uh, uniform care solution. It's a really exciting time to be in the healthcare space. Definitely. Thanks, Pete. And uh, excited to hear your you know, first-hand experiences rolling this out. Steven, you want to go next? Uh, Stephen Laser, Global Healthcare CTO for Dell Technologies. Um, spent my last uh, 22 years now in working with healthcare, so still something of a newbie because it changes every single day, um, which is what I love about it. I'm very passionate about care and care delivery. Uh, I've done a lot of work with the eCare21 team as well, um, and uh, working with healthcare on a global basis, trying to figure out what is that next phase of normal. Uh, I know that we've entered into a new phase of normal at this point. Uh, I'm looking at what's coming after this even further into the future at this point. Yeah, it's amazing how healthcare constantly changes and yet some things are still amazingly the same. <laughs> like It evolves quickly, but some things are so uh, entrenched. So it's an interesting balance for sure. Thanks, Steve. We're looking forward to the conversation. Uh, last but not least, Jamie, you want to go ahead? Sure. Jamie Edwards, CEO and co-founder of CloudBreak Health. We are a unified telemedicine company that's really focused on resolving healthcare disparities. We're in around 1,200 hospitals across the country doing over 85,000 encounters a month on 10,000 plus video endpoints and really got started as a business by bringing language interpreters to the point of care to service the deaf and hard of hearing and limited English proficient patients, which are about 20 plus percent of the population here in the United States and have since expanded the platform so that we can do things like telestroke, telepsychiatry. Uh, COVID's been a tremendous catalyst, uh, I think, for everybody on this panel um, because it's really helped driven uh, you know, a lot of adoption of, of telemed solutions. And for us, we actually were able to launch a telequarantine solution so that those 10,000 video endpoints in the field could be rolled into the room. The doctor then didn't need to go into the room, didn't need to gown up and use PPE. And you know, we helped mitigate the risk of uh, contagion as a result of that too. And it's been used over 5,000 times in the last month and a half. So really excited about how innovation has been accelerated uh, given COVID. And um, I'm looking forward to this panel because I learn something every time from everyone else on here. So educate me. <laughs> That's the goal here, Jamie, and uh, I think it is an exciting time, as a number of you have mentioned, in healthcare because we've had opportunities to innovate. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of challenges, but there's also opportunities amidst challenge. So uh, let's talk about that and let's dive in there. And maybe, Stephen, you could start us off, but how can a healthcare organization determine which patients need to be engaged in a virtual care? Uh, current state on the virtual care perspective is really going to be looking at which patients we can that we do not have to be in physical contact with. Um, as you start to look at not only chronic care management, but uh, remote patient management capabilities, how do we go ahead and be able to provide a similar environment to what they would be receiving without having contact? Um, and that is really kind of the crux of, of where, where we are today. And I think will be further expanded as to where we go tomorrow. 
I like that approach. It's like who is good in virtual care? And what's great is we just now have what the last three months of virtual care where we know what works and what doesn't. Uh, yeah, I'm waiting for the official studies to come out, but uh, you know, every organization has some internal metrics uh, you know, that they could use to do that. Any other thoughts, Jamie, on how, how do we really determine which patients should engage in that? And then maybe we hit, hit Pete and then go. Yeah. So for me, it's like, it's very simple because all we need to do is ask the patient. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think about it and I'm like, we could come up with all these complex reasons and algorithms, but the fact of the matter is the patients are really going to start voting with their fingers. And when you take a look at people like Kaiser or the VA, you know, they're currently seeing over 50% of their visits over telemedicine. And I think health systems, we're in the process of redefining what a health system is, and they need to start thinking differently and think of virtual health as, you know, while the ER used to be the front door of the healthcare system, really telemedicine can now be that front door. And while it's a digital front door, it needs to be thought of more as now the main front door of the hospital, helping patients really wayfind their, uh, their place to what is an appropriate in-person visit. Um, and that really, to me, is is the big driver. Um, and as opposed to thinking where it's appropriate, I'm kind of thinking like where isn't it appropriate um, to be that first stage of lower acuity, kind of wayfinding, case management, et cetera, that helps direct the patient to where they actually need to be and basically load balance the healthcare system in that way. I'd push back on that a little, I guess. Uh, I, I agree with you. Ask the patient because guess what? If you don't ask the patient, the patient's going to choose either way. And if they want a telehealth visit and you're not providing it, then there's a good chance that patient could go somewhere else. So, so on that perspective, we agree. I, I guess I would just say that there's certain cases where if you know you can't treat that condition, that complaint, whatever it is, then that seems like a bad time to encourage a telehealth visit. You know, if they want that, sure, of course you'd facilitate it. But you know, so I guess that's where I would have a little pushback on it. And, yeah, look, no, there's no good webinar without some pushback, John. So I, 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 I applaud that. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, look, we all know that telemedicine is probably not that good first visit for a gunshot wound, right? So that, place, that patient needs to go to an ER trauma. You've got to do it. Um, in most chronic care situations, or at least to understand that that patient needs to go and see an in-person, like telemedicine can still be used, the same as calling your pediatrician and saying, my, my, well, my, my daughter has a fever, do I need to bring her in? And, um, you know, the, the doctor then asks you some pointed questions and said, yeah, you know what, 105, I'm worried about your daughter, let's bring her in. Um, so I guess for me, I look at it as a tool that can be integrated into the broad spectrum of how we provide care, as opposed to a telemedicine visit. To me, it's simply the new medicine, and it's an integrated digital tool that a doctor can use the same way they might use a stethoscope. Yeah. And I think if you look at some of the messages on uh, answering machines for uh, doctor's offices, uh, you know, there's it's just shocking. Some patients wouldn't know with a, you know, a gunshot wound, I need to go to the ER, <laughs> unfortunately, right? Like, you know, so I think I think you're right, though. We do need the digital tools to help patients who aren't as health literate, if you will, uh, you know, in knowing when they should go to the doctor or not, you know, the gunshot wound obviously is an extreme example, but there's yes. more nuanced ones that are, that are more challenging. We need to facilitate that. Pete, you want to chime in? Well, the way I look at it, um, you really have to provide multiple modes of communication and be able to have both asynchronous and synchronous opportunities on the front door of your digital front door. You need to enable those because each patient is different. 
the timing and the event that a patient will experience will change over time so that in the moment you can care for that patient using the mode of communication that they feel most comfortable with and they can escalate it from there so it might start with an ai bot informing them that, uh, maybe through a nest or an echo hey it looks like your blood pressure is high uh, do you want to speak to somebody? Those kind of interactions, including a telephone call, proactive telephone call from the practice, may be followed by a telehealth visit because in the moment you need to see, are they experiencing a stroke? Is their face um, you know, drooping a little bit? You need to see them in the moment, so you click a button, you're on the screen, followed by perhaps you need a device to monitor your blood pressure, Mr. Smith. I'm going to send it to you, and when you get it, click OK, and now you're connected. I've got your data. And if you have a cellular device, which is available today, both blood pressures, scales, and glucometers, you now have the ability to make it completely frictionless. No more Bluetooth, no more Wi-Fi. For the most part, the patients can manage their own health. And you, if you deliver them education, you reduce the amount of calls. But you also learn a lot about the patients, their dexterity. Uh, some are deaf, some are blind, some, and each patient is different, and you need to meet them in the moment and with the right mode of communication. So you know, that's the way I look at it. There, you can survey them, that's great, but ultimately it's in the moment where they really are gonna get the best value out of the system. And what Pete is really talking about, just to pile on, because I think you made a bunch of great points in there, is a continuum of care approach and a patient journey and where digital tools actually fit into that. So is telemedicine a panacea for everything? No, it's not, but there are places in that journey where it's a perfect fit to get to that next stage. Excellent point. I, I think that's the other wrinkle that you know I think Gail will will love is uh, it's really around value based care, right? I mean, I, I you know it would be wonderful if we were like the president and had a doctor going around with us all the time to assess our our health, but we you know that's just not scalable. It's not reasonable. So you know in in a value based care world which we're moving towards, you have to have some sort of data to understand who should you engage with and at what level should you engage with them. So, you know, maybe you could talk to that, Gil, and, you know, how do we navigate that as well? Because you can't have a, a doctor or nurse or care practitioner of some sort reaching out to every patient every day, which would be ideal or, you know, I guess even living with them. But <laughs> we know we just can't get there, right? So what is the right approach? So we're doing virtual triage is so which you can do that right you set a, a list of of good basic examples when something needs to be escalated and we're literally triaging it through technology and phone so we have a, a call center person makes a phone call and they have the technology to make the phone call and while they're talking to someone the person says oh I'm, I'm bleeding terribly, what do I do? Like, oh, okay, then we're gonna connect you to the ambulance uh, or to our doctor. But if they say, we, I don't have my medicine. Well, why do you not have your medicine? I don't have medicine because it wasn't delivered. Okay, then we're gonna connect you right now to the delivery service that we use to get your medicine today. Or I'm not taking my medicine because um, I don't understand what medicine I'm supposed to take. Okay, then we're gonna connect you right now to the nurse who's gonna go over your medication, right? We, I'll say technology is a tool, and thank you, Davey, so much for saying continuum of care, right? That's what I do, I am continuum of care, which means that we use the tools, and I love what you said, Pete, about in the place where the patient is. 
So how do we do it? It could be phone, it could be email. We have text. I mean, I love text as an option if that's what the patient likes. We can send somebody out. You know, even we can send paramedicine out. We can bring somebody in. Sometimes the best care is bringing somebody into a subacute facility to keep them out of an acute facility. Sometimes, right? So it's not only telemedicine, it's virtual care, which means reach the patient however they want to be patient, reached at the time and fashion that they want to be reached and make sure that you can connect them ahead of time. So we have 24 seven, a social worker on call. We have 24 seven dietitian. We have 24 seven nurse. We have 24 seven doctor. But does that mean that's who's making the call? No, not necessarily because that's not always what's needed. So we triage virtually through a workflow, just like we used to think only about triaging when somebody was in person. So does that adjust everything? <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Uh, and and I, I think we need to dive in more into how do we engage them? What's the right modality? And when do you determine that modality? Before we get there, though, let's do a quick uh, lightning round. Each of you gets one prediction of who's going to own that digital front door that we talked about, the, the virtual triage, if you will. Uh, who, who's going to own it? Is it the provider organizations? Is it the payers? Is it, we're not sure. Is it, <laughs> it going to be a startup company? Is it going to be a consumer site? Uh, let's go around the horn. Jamie, uh, we'll start with you. Look, I, I still like to think about healthcare as a local business. And I think people want to be part of a local continuum where if something needs to be escalated, they can be fast tracked past the front door of the ER to the bed in the back, right? Um, and be connected into that local orthopedist or whatever it might be. So I'm going to say the health system owns that front door. A lot of people in terms of trusted branding still trust that local health system to provide their services. Um, so I'm going to go with that. But it's uh, this is a tough one because payers have so much sway in market and you know are providing benefits. It's going to be really interesting to see how it evolves. Yeah, Stephen. I think that as you look at this, it's going to start off with the providers. There's no question about that. But I think eventually it's going to be moving back to the payers as they try to drive efficiency and drive costs out of the out of the equation. Uh, either that or the payers will be providing it for the providers based on a fee for service type approach and being, being the purveyor of that. Oh, Pete? Yeah, healthcare is a team sport, so it's tough to guess exactly where this is gonna go. I could check the box all of the above, but the reality <laughs> is Steve's right. I think the payers eventually are gonna, they're waking up right now, let's face it. Uh, back at AHIP uh, in Nashville last year, there was a panel basically say it'll be a couple years before we really start leaning forward. You can see it right now, they're already leaning forward. Some of them are realizing that if they can get access to the patient directly, they can, you know, if you have some degree of uh, control over the information that's flowing up and you could blockchain it, for instance, and you could drive the ability for the payers to have confidence on their risk models, that bond is going to get stronger and stronger in driving incentives right down to the patient cohort and say, you guys are doing really well. You get this big benefit, uh, you know, discounts. Whereas those that are not doing well might get a further incentives to nudge them forward or services, um, as Gail was talking about, a, a excellent concept where you really meet the patient where they're at in the moment. And payers can incent that as soon as the studies are done and you see the results are in and the flag goes up and they immediately will dive in, in my, my view. Awesome. And Gail? So, you know, I, I believe the relationship of trust should be between the provider and the patient. 
And therefore, I think that the entry is certainly the health systems. That said, what do I do most of my day is talk to payers and uh, try to encourage them to support this kind of work. We, we, you know, we can't we can't do it without them. And I think it takes innovation on the side of payers, which I'm seeing a tremendous amount of um, and a little bit of courage. And they'll enable us to have that relationship. Yeah, Team sport. So I think some great insights. Uh, my, my take is the health system makes sense to do it and they should do it, but will they have the vision to do it? The payers have the financial incentive, but they don't have the trust of the patient. Uh, the employer's paying a lot, so maybe they should. Uh, and there's a lot of you know really interesting startups that can create an amazing consumer experience that many of the others can't invest in. So uh, you know to call back a McLaughlin group. Yeah, I would just I say uh, the answer is we don't know. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> I just want to add, you had asked me about value earlier, John, and the thing is that value is where this ties in. A value relationship enables us to all work together and get paid um, to do so, but it encourages us to work together. So that's where I think the value comes in is enabling us to all, because really we all have different roles, right? So... No, definitely. And it definitely takes a team to be able to engage in it. Pete, and maybe I can add just one more comment on this too. What I'm also seeing is public-private partnerships emerging through this pandemic. And I really think the reshaping of the healthcare system is on the verge of something that we couldn't even foresee 10 years ago, even three years ago. But now you're seeing through public-private partnerships in this pandemic, where people are treating this almost like a military operation and things are getting a little bit more structured and I think it's good where patients are now demanding care and demanding to be healed, and the private market and the free market is actually delivering technology and solutions with the support of public uh, partnerships, public-private partnerships, because ultimately the insurance and the payers and other elements uh, need to be there to surround that patient locally in order to provide the best elements of care in the moment. And that's a, more of a local uh, team sport, if you will, than, a, than a, uh, uh, a national team sport. Definitely. And healthcare is so distributed. I mean, it's one of the most distributed uh, uh, or, uh, businesses out there. So, you know, it's hard to see any one Google owning this space, if you will, uh, you know, as far as that. It's going to be distributed between a number of players, very regional. So let's um, switch back, though, now to, uh, you know, okay, so once you've identified the right patient and the right modality, what is the best way to engage them? What are some of the options? And how do you know when each action is appropriate? Uh, you know, I mean, I'll throw a few of them out there. There's email, of course, uh, which, uh, you know, the the understated powerful tool that it is and still remains and, you know, enemy, but also powerful. <laughs> we all have our inboxes that we love and hate, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, text messaging, video, uh, you know, we can certainly talk about devices shipped to the home and what's happening there. You know, when is the right action appropriate and how do you look at it? Stephen, you want to start and maybe we'll hit Pete after? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I think the device, the choice of device and choice of interaction methodology really is somewhat generational. Um, as you start to look at the populations that we're working with, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the silver tsunami population or the, the, the boomers, as they may be called. Um, as we start to see them age, providing them with a device that is fully integrated and ready to go seems to be the easiest method possible rather than having trying to have grandma go ahead and Bluetooth pair that new device with something that she owns. Um, 
you're laughing there, uh, but I, that really is, that's the reality of it, is that we have mm -hmm. to make it very, very simple for them and very convenient. It needs to work out of the box. It needs to work flawlessly. It needs to be fully integrated from, from the word go. Uh, if we talk about the younger generations and looking at it as we start to get into Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, um, they're much more flexible and the device of choice right there in most cases yeah. um, is because everything else is already there in their lives. And that is how they function. That's how they work. Uh, pairing Bluetooth devices if they choose to do so or utilizing non-Bluetooth paired that our cellular devices are always the options, uh, but they're typically somewhat limited in functionality, especially today, and they're usually single function devices. So how do we get that into that optimized um, technology simplified view? No, I, I, yeah, I apologize for the laugh. I've had some uh, Bluetooth pairing uh, misery in the past week, so I, I totally appreciated the, the, the moment. We all do. <laughs> It's certainly a challenge. Pete, uh, you know, how are you guys looking at it, you know, and, and when do you ship a device versus, you know, when is the cell phone enough? Yeah, to me, it really comes, I, I would like to beg off and say it depends, but it does really. When you look at the models down on the ground, it really is the patient and you have to look at each individual patient and what their acuity is and assess that. And typically you can do that in a workflow right at the annual wellness visit is the first structure point. Transitions of care post-discharge is the second big one. And then regular calls to patients that haven't called you in a while and let them know they're eligible to receive a device and Medicare will pay for it. And we'd love to provide proactive care. Those three steps right there would cover probably 70% of the people because the last step would be, hey, this device is free. If the other two don't work, no, the reality is the device is free uh, $69 per patient per month, uh, if you look at it just on a national average, uh, for reimbursement for send, send them a blood pressure meter or give them a, a weight scale for COPD monitoring. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of uh, variables there, but it really comes down to the patient and what they really need. And then the question is, how do we scale this en masse in order to deploy it to large segments of the population? Let's say you want to have a special program for CHF blood pressure and scale, you've got to get it out to 1,000, 10,000 patients because it's proven. I, I've got a, a physician right now that signed on. She just said, I want to get going and I want everyone to have a device. That's great news, but they've got to figure out their process in order to get it deployed. And um, those processes with patients are still being worked out. And that's where the biggest challenge is right now as you scale these things. And I think it's fascinating you mentioned that because as a former tech guy myself, uh, I say former, uh, you know, where I was rolling out servers and hundreds of desktops in organizations, it was fascinating to think about my process. And, you know, uh, you know, full disclosure, I was a Dell customer at the time, you know, and obviously they're sponsoring this, this thing. But, uh, you know, they, you know, even back then, 15 years ago, when I was doing this on the day to day, they would install the desktop before it arrived. So all I had to do was roll it out. So it's fascinating to see Dell applying that same concept that they used for servers and for desktop imaging to now these medical devices and, and being able to deliver those to the home in the way Stephen described it, as far as making them functional out of the box is a, is a powerful idea and is a challenge when you're trying to do it at scale. But uh, 
Jamie, you want to you know add your thoughts? You know, what what are you seeing and how to engage these patients? I mean, you have a unique population too because you add in the translation services as well. Yeah, well, look, I, I'm going to go back to Pete's kind of D all of the above answer, right? Um, the fact is, every patient is unique and needs a unique solution. When we take a look at the market, we're always you know skewing towards what is the simplest, easiest way and to speak to someone on their terms, and some of that might actually be the TV set. Um, I think we need to be able to communicate with these patients on devices they already have, as opposed to, you know, well, here, we need to now give you a hub and do X, Y, and Z. So, like, what's the simplest, most elegant way to do it? And everyone knows how to use their remote control, at least most people do. And those TVs are already in their home. I mean, I, I forget the numbers on the prevalence of, like, flat screen TVs and smart TVs in America's homes, but that number goes up rapidly. Um, you know, every week. And if you take a look at a company like Mirror, which just sold to Lululemon for $500 million, you know, the founder there, Bryn Putnam, she kind of thinks about this as, well, once I'm bringing fitness services into the home, what else can I be bringing into that home? It's basically a, a web-enabled telemedicine tool already sitting there hanging on your wall. Well, if you're going to see a trainer there, why can't you see a doctor over that same type of technology? So, you know, I'm definitely in the camp that I think every home in the future should have, you know, something like that or is going to be able to do it over Apple TV or whatever it might be. And there should be a kit of RPM services. And the problem with RPM right now, with remote patient monitoring is, you know, to Pete's point, these devices are expensive. You know, Empatica is just coming out with a watch that does a bunch of really cool stuff, but it's $400. So the real question is, how can we bring this down and make it cost neutral or free uh, in Pete's terms so that the scan and do or tricorder becomes a reality in everybody's home. And I think to take it a step further, how can we make being healthy cool and turn these not into healthcare items, but lifestyle items? Because at that point, you know, that's what's really going to impact the healthcare system is using these devices to impact behavior around, you know, being able to bring in a dietitian from Gail's organization while you're sitting there at the table and saying, should I really be eating this or not? Um, we, we kind of chuckle at that, but like that's where this becomes super interesting. And you talk about really changing the nature of healthcare in this country. Now, definitely uh, getting the, the devices in the hands of many people who couldn't afford them, right? Uh, you know, it, it, we've often heard about the Apple Watch, right? And uh, it's it's solving a problem for people who don't have a problem. <laughs> so, or at least they're not the expensive part of the healthcare system, right? So it's it, it's a challenging thing for sure. And I think the other challenging part, and I, I'd be interested to hear Gail's thoughts on this, is what's the workflow for the provider? And, and how do you, you know, how do you, okay, you can get the device in there and you're collecting all this data, but now, you know, how do we get that data to the provider and how do we do it in a way that makes sense? Uh, that, that's overwhelming from a provider perspective, you know, I, I think, but, you know, what is the right workflow, Gil, and, and, and who is the provider, if you will? Uh, that's best yeah. I mean, that's what I was thinking the whole time everybody was talking. I said, we like, right, not only for the patient, but for the provider, like it has to work. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to tear it down to an example, cardiac, because that gives me, so we have a cardiac rehab inpatient that uses telemetry to keep track on a 24-7 basis on how they're doing. That needs to be as intuitive as possible so that the care team who is there gets the proper alerts that it's not dependent on Wi-Fi. Because the Wi-Fi goes down and then what if we're not getting tracking? So then take it to when a patient goes home. A big thing with remote patient monitoring is it requires compliance. The patient has to do something. 
So even if it's very cool and they have to hold something to their head, they have to do it. So in my opinion, it's really going to move to what devices require nothing for the patient to do. But then, like you said, where does the data go and who needs the data? So we've solved what to do with the data once we find out if the blood pressure is, is problematic, if the weight is problematic. Okay, so then we'll have alerts and tell people. But how is it being collected and then where does it go? How long does it take? Because guys, sometimes it can take days and it's not our fault, right? And it takes days for us to get the data. And then how does it come back to the patient? So using the cardiac patient, they come home. 40% of them go back to the hospital in 30 days. We want to reduce that. All of us want to reduce that. So that means that let's say the blood pressure and weight are collected at home through a device that doesn't require the patient to do anything. Then that data needs to go to whatever system the providers have set up. If it's a call center, if it's alerts, if it's a phone, it needs to go seamlessly and immediately, not depends on Wi-Fi only, so that we then can react appropriately, right? And that's, I mean, it's such a good question and I really, it would be great if more people were asking that, right? Where is the patient on their journey and where is the provider? And the fact that we now are a very big team approach. So it cannot be just one doctor. If this information needs to, and we need to be able to decide that. So if the blood pressure is at a certain level, we need to decide that that then goes to a cardiologist, or it can go to a nurse practitioner, or it can go to a dietitian or a physical therapist, whoever it is. That's something we can decide globally, which we need to be able to do, but then it needs to be able to go to whichever provider it is. Yeah, and I see two models really shaping up. I, I'd be interested to hear if other people know, but it seems like there's two approaches to this. One is a dedicated team to a virtual care offering, you know, tracking cardiac patients with remote monitoring, with social workers and dietitians and whoever else is needed for that team. And then we have direct to the EHR. So, you know, if, you know, to me, that's, the, I don't know, it seems like that's the only way and, and, and in some ways, it almost creates a silo, which is not necessarily good, right? Uh, you know, you have this dedicated team, which does some amazing work, provides amazing care. But if you want the, the mass to adopt it, it needs to be in the EHR. At least that would be my assertion. And, why and the EHR? Just, I mean, why the EHR? If you want the regular doctor to incorporate it into the normal course of care. So you don't mean the EHR, you mean the doctor. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, if you want to get access to the doctor, you have to give the, the data to the EHR. That's my assertion. Do you disagree? Okay. I do disagree because we're dealing with the same doctor could be dealing with five different EHRs depending on which part of the practice it is. So, but I think that the answer is both, right? We have a dedicated team. Let's use social work, for example. We have a social worker who will answer a call that comes in virtually but then I always want to put it back to the treating team. So if it then becomes a social work issue that the social worker at a skilled nursing facility dealt with when the person was in rehab, then let the social worker on virtual will pass it back to the social worker at the center. And that social worker will be able to communicate directly with the patient. I mean, I'm all for that relationship. So without the EHR necessarily.
So they're passing it social worker to social worker, though, not necessarily. And then it goes back to, right. I mean, do we use technology? Of course we do, right, to transfer the record so that people can read it. And But I'm saying that the you, you need a dedicated team to the virtual team, just like you would at an emergency room. That's a really good example. In an emergency room, you have an emergency room staff. You have a social worker, you have a doctor, you have nurses that need to care. And But then if it's a patient, who's been at that hospital before, at some point it gets passed to the treating doctor, right? So it's the same thing. The virtual team is the virtual emergency room group. We do everything we can, but we recognize that we need to pass it back to the treating doctors whenever appropriate. That is a good example. Interestingly enough, the urgent care is the only place that's been able to carve out that they deserve their own software, not necessarily the EHR software. So <laughs> it's interesting that those those comparisons. Pete, how, how are you guys approaching it? Is it really the dedicated team? Are you integrating with the HR? Are you using some other approach? Well, you have to have, again, all of the above, because right now we're in a transition. And as you know, whenever you're in a transition, everybody believes that they're the center. And they're all trying to develop their own center. Like, it's me. Everything has to come to me, and I'll share it with everyone else. That's the problem that we are facing right now with the EHRs. They all built up their data model and based off of claims. And now we're looking at how do we get the data into the EHR when, in fact, over the course of many years, they have not allowed you to get a lot of data out of the EHR the interoperability component, and leave that for a, a third call that we might have as a team here, yeah. because that is a big topic, maybe two or three calls on that. But in reality, I'll keep it short and sweet. The reality is, here's where we are. We're in a transition. The patient now is in control of their healthcare. They could. They could grab that baton right now out of the COVID-19 emergency and grab a solution that works really well for virtual care, or several because I do believe no one solution is the be-all, end-all solution. I think there's an opportunity for technology players to step up here, build, roll this up, and build a new virtual care solution that emerges as something that works in complement to the EHRs. I will never say replace them. It's in complement. And the EHRs really are the ambulatory, in the moment, maybe EHR uh, type of a solution where the data is there if you need it, but for virtual care, it's a different mode of care, totally different workflows, different mode of care. And I've been told uh, by a couple of integration experts that all of the data that we collect for virtual care, there isn't a place for it in the EHR in many cases. They have to build data models that work for virtual care. And guess what? They're not gonna move very quickly. And we've got patients that are demanding care right now, virtually. So. I think there's an opportunity right now for technology providers to step forward, build this integrated solution, learn very quickly because that's what technology companies do, and build it with the customer in the mind, the, the customer, the patient. You want to keep them as a customer and not have them as a patient too often, right? The idea is to keep them out of the, the higher setting of care, but you can do that proactively with data and increased communication. And to me, that's where the real core issues are. How do you meet the patient in the moment, communicate with them effectively, and then get the data where it needs to go in the form that needs to get into the EHR? Because ultimately, that's where you don't want to have a double right, but you do want to provide care in the moment, virtually and quickly, in real time in many cases. Yeah, and it would be great to see the virtual care system you talk about 
become a revenue center for the organization because right now the EHR is the revenue center for many organizations uh, because there are big billing engines, right? At the end of the day. That's right. So that's a fascinating look. Uh, you know, we only have five minutes left, but I, I, I want to make sure we hit our last topic, which really is around measurement. Uh, you know, how, how do we measure the outcomes of this virtual care? Uh, anyone want to be brave and, and try to address this topic first? Are, are you saying what do we measure or how do we measure it? Because we have to measure all day long. And it would, I, I would love an EHR that gave me reports on the information that I actually want to hear on a constant basis, right? But we're, I mean, we're tasked with measuring outcomes all the time. And so we just need to make sure that we're collecting that data so that we can report on it. I mean, and is it the same measure in virtual care that you're already measuring? Or are there other measures? I mean, on what we should be measuring, right? So using the cardiac example, I need to know what's going on with blood pressure um, and if it's getting better. And, but always we need to know, are we keeping people out of the hospital or not? And I'll tell you what, John, that is not something most people can answer. And that's something we should have been able to answer a long time ago. But So they so, can't measure if the actions that were produced the results or you just can't measure the results at all? Because interoperability is more than a theoretic challenge and uh, solves more than just a theoretic solution. If we have five different EHRs that a patient is touching on because they've seen a bunch of different people and one discharges a patient to the home and another one takes them on for home care and a third EHR takes them into the emergency room and a fourth EHR deals with them when they're inpatient and a fifth one when they get discharged to another post-acute and none of them are talking to each other, no one can tell you that that patient went back to the hospital. And if we can't tell you that they went back to the hospital, we can't tell you how to prevent it. And there are a lot of people like myself who stay up all night wanting to keep patients out of the hospital. And we can't get that basic data. So if we can solve that, that would be amazing, right? And that's a huge outcome. I mean, it's a number one outcome for everyone. So I want to have that conversation, Pete, that follow-up on interoperability. I want to. <laughs> that's a big one. <laughs> Jamie, you ready? That, that's, yeah, a that's a six-month conversation. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you look at outcomes, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't look at outcomes for virtual care. I look at outcomes for the overall healthcare system and how virtual care then plays into that. So this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I hope virtual care increases access to the system. And so hopefully you see more consumption of care, but at lower acuity levels. Um, and I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but my hope and goal would be that if more people are engaging earlier, and living a healthier lifestyle as a result of virtual care tools, that then you're really practicing more preventive care and people are more conscious of their own health. And so you're gonna see fewer chronic conditions, fewer higher acuity kind of, you know, if you take a look at our country, right? The biggest killers are cancer and heart disease. And so how can we take a look at, you know, how to, how to, how to address those problems and people are living healthier lifestyles, you'd hope the prevalence of heart disease would then go down as a result of that. Now granted, people are getting older, we're gonna see a more prevalence with baby boomers aging and doing all of that with, with more of these types of conditions. But I would love to see that people are increasing their longevity and quality of life as a result of having these tools available to them and taking more of that you know, overall holistic approach to it, not just saying how many virtual care visits, what's the ROI on virtual care, et cetera. I mean, we can do that and that's gonna be a part of it, but I think you have to look at it as a broader tool in the bigger system. 
fascinating. You said that about increasing visits. I, I just got off a, a call with a, Tom Leary, the HIMSS uh, policy person, who said that the reason that telehealth reimbursement rates weren't increased before all of the pandemic was because they did the study and they said it would actually increase the cost of Medicare because people would start using the system more. And so, you know, because I'm with you, right? Using the system more actually prevents it long term. It may have a short term increase of cost, you know, be, to be able to cover those increased visits. But long term, if you, you know, help prevent them from getting sick and things like that seems like a good investment. But, you know, from the budgeting standpoint, that's hard to it's hard to see short term versus long term. So, uh, you know, it'll Great. be interesting to see. But now they have the data. So hopefully the data will inform them and they can make it long term. So uh, unfortunately, we're at the end of the time. Uh, I guess we have to schedule five more of these. We're going to start the virtual care uh, meetup uh, coalition. No, but no, you know, let's, uh, Stephen, uh, thanks for hosting us and Dell Technologies for really hosting these uh, discussions. Uh, I've definitely learned a lot and had a good discussion, but any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, from a final thoughts perspective, I think virtual care is really here for the long term. This is going to become the next normal or the new normal or our current state future. Um, however you want to look at it, I think that you're going to see this not only start here, but grow from here and continue to grow in a pretty dramatic fashion. Uh, the availability of being able to reach your clinician without having to leave your home, without having to put yourself at any risk, especially in today's environment, is really where I think we're, where I think this is headed. And from a Dell Technologies perspective, I also want to say thank you to everyone for participating. Thank you so much for taking the time today and for our attendees, thank you so much. Um, and as you'll, you'll find out from Dell Technologies, we offer solutions for healthcare and help healthcare organizations really realize their digital transformation. And digital transformation is one of those factors that really lead into things like virtual care and be able to provide those new ways of looking at care and delivering care from a, a consumer-centric perspective. Uh, we do have transformative infrastructure solutions that will help you go ahead and deliver that care and help our customers really achieve those clinical, uh, achieve that clinical and business goals with their agility and really looking at how we rethink care delivery today. If you would be so kind to please visit us at delltechnologies.com slash healthcare and follow health, Transform Health IT to engage with us on virtual care and uh, quite a bit more. I look forward to uh, chatting with you again, and hopefully we'll host those other five or six sessions as we're talking about. <laughs> we want to do it. Thanks for having us, Steve. <laughs> and we'll solve the interoperability challenge. Thank you, everyone, so much. Have Thanks a wonderful so day. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Appreciate this. If you want to watch the recorded version, we'll be posting it on healthcareittoday.com and, of course, sharing it on social media with transform HIT hashtag and HITSM. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you.